everyone. Not long ago, I recorded a podcast entitled The Aspirin Story, From Willow to Wonder Drug, charting the key stages in both the drug's discovery and large-scale manufacture. In this podcast, I want to talk about the drug's toxicity, or more specifically, how we go about conducting toxicological testing for it. A little historical perspective to begin with, though. Forensic toxicology debuted in 1836, when Scottish chemist James Marsh announced the eponymous Marsh test. It was the first reliable forensic test for arsenic and antimony. In the early 19th century, arsenic compounds were widely used for many purposes and were readily available at a low cost. Would-be murderers then considered arsenic an ideal poison, because arsenic compounds were lethal in really small doses. They were readily soluble, odourless, tasteless and impossible to detect. In 1832, Marsh testified as an expert witness at the trial of John Bodle, who was accused of murdering his grandfather by putting arsenic into his coffee. Marsh used the then standard test for arsenic, mixing a specimen of the suspect material with hydrochloric acid and hydrogen sulphide to precipitate the arsenic as insoluble arsenic trisulphide. Unfortunately, by the time that Marsh testified, the specimen had already degraded and the jury was unconvinced by Marsh's scientific testimony. Bodle was acquitted and Marsh watched as a guilty man walked free. The test, though, that Marsh finally devised is still used today by forensic labs that can't afford really mass spectrometers, which is almost like the gold standard when it comes to testing. And I'll talk more of that about that later. So what actually is toxicology? Well, it's the study of poisons or the detection of foreign substances in the body that can have a toxic effect, such as illicit, as in illegal, or legal drugs like alcohol, industrial chemicals, or even poisonous gases. Forensic toxicology is the use of toxicology in disciplines such as analytical chemistry, pharmacology and clinical chemistry to aid medical or legal investigation of death, poisoning and drug use. So this kind of investigative work would be conducted by a medical examiner or a coroner in the case of a post-mortem, in the case of motor vehicle accidents or MVAs, in assaults, in workplace drug testing programmes and even in the world of sports, both human and animal, to ensure that there's no, I guess you could say, chemical advantage afforded to any one competitor. The key message here is that a toxic substance could be a cause of death, contribute to death, cause impairment, or actually just be able to explain quite atypical behaviour. Some toxins, though, you just can't get rid of that easily. I remember reading a really interesting article a few years ago about a man named David Zerflu. Um, You might have heard of him. It's quite an incredible story. He ate his own underwear, thinking that the actual material would absorb all the copious amounts of alcohol that he'd consumed when driving. I guess some people really will go to any lengths to avoid being caught out. Let's talk about the core elements of toxicology. What exactly would an examiner be looking to determine? Well, they'd certainly want to know about the dosage, 
or the chemical or physical form of the substance. The method of entry into the body, the physical makeup of the individual, so the age, the gender, the weight, the physiological condition, all of those can have an effect on how a drug is metabolised, for example. The time period of exposure, and whether or not other chemicals are present. Infants and the elderly are more susceptible to toxins than healthy adults. Individuals can actually be more susceptible to substances, so they become more harmful, depending on the method of transfer. By methods, I should just clarify, I'm referring to either ingestion, injection into the bloodstream, absorption or inhalation. Interestingly, today it's thought that less than 0.5% of all murders actually just result from poisoning. I think it's interesting, especially considering the story that I began with about how easy it was back in the day to poison. Specimens sent for toxicology testing are usually collected by the forensic pathologist who may also be an appointed medical examiner or a coroner. In living persons, whenever possible, they would collect both blood and urine and if possible they would get two sets of samples from every tissue. Samples of hair or skin would be required if the suspected exposure method is absorption and in the deceased, blood, organ tissue, vitreous humour found in the eyes and gastric contents can all be collected if required. I want to discuss how we go about identifying the types of drugs found in toxicological examination and then we'll focus on aspirin. So initially you would carry out screening tests or presumptive tests. These would include colour tests along with microcrystalline analysis. A reagent is added that produces a crystalline precipitate, all of which are unique for certain drugs. You would then move on to the confirmation test. So here we're talking about things like spectrophotometry, mass spectrometry and chromatography. The latter, I'm sure you, that most of you have heard of, is where you separate mixtures into their component compounds using two phases, one mobile and one stationary, that flow past one another. And as the mixture separates, it interacts with the two phases. Thin layer chromatography is the preferred method here. Mass spectrometry, however, is the go-to method as such when it comes to forensic toxicological examination. Here, a mixture is separated first in a gas chromatograph. The gas chromatograph, or GC column, if you like, is directly attached to the mass spectrometer, where a beam of electrons is shot through the sample molecules. Now, what happens here is that the electrons cause the molecules themselves to lose their own electrons, and so they become positively charged. These are unstable, and they decompose into many smaller fragments. Those fragments pass through an electric or a magnetic field and get separated according to their masses. The key principle is that no two substances produce the same fragmentation pattern. I want to now focus the attention on the toxicological testing of aspirin. In many of the podcasts that I record, particularly the forensic science ones, I refer to famous case studies to provide examples of how, say, hair or fibres or blood have been used to catch perpetrators. 
I wanted to talk about another relatively famous case in this podcast. And in fact, for the first time, I thought it would be interesting to base the content of the discussion around it. So, in October 2017, a plot by 18-year-old Sarai Rodriguez Miranda to kill her 11-week-old nephew was uncovered. She'd been secretly crushing pills into bottles of breast milk. Those bottles contained toxic levels of over-the-counter painkillers, namely aspirin. Upon discovering incriminating text messages on Sarai's phone, her own mother did some investigating of her own, and she found one bottle in the fridge contained milk that was darker than another, and it had this residue at the bottom of the bottle with a very distinctive greenish-coloured ring. Thankfully, her mother turned her into the police. It's thought that all of this plotting began simply because Rodriguez Miranda's brother and his fiancée were given permission to stay a little bit longer at the family home. Samples of white powder were found at the home of Rodriguez Miranda. So now let's consider what investigators would have done with those samples. Well, the first thing would have to be to obtain positive identification that those samples did indeed contain aspirin. With any aspirin overdose, it's important initially, though, to consider the signs and symptoms that would have been displayed. And they certainly would have looked at this child to see if they were displaying any of these, to see if any poisoning had taken place. The classic presentation of the aspirin toxic patient is what we call the triad of hyperventilation, so very fast breathing, tinnitus or ringing in the ears, and gastrointestinal irritation or GI irritation. GI symptoms include things like nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain and bleeding, usually hematemesis, which is essentially the vomiting of blood. Fever, sweating, dizziness or restlessness may also be present. Early in the course of overdose, these symptoms may be mild and respiratory alkalosis is the main acid-based disturbance. However, metabolic acidosis from the build-up of lactic acid becomes the predominant acid-based disorder later in the course of toxicity. Decreased blood pH leads to an increased distribution of salicylates in the central nervous system. Acidosis is an ominous sign and it may herald the onset of quite dramatic changes in clinical status, including hemodynamic instability, and by that I mean tachycardia, which is a faster heart rate, but hypotension and a very low blood pressure, arrhythmias, like irregular heartbeats, pulmonary edema, swellings, lethargy, hallucinations, seizures, or even coma. Patients with chronic toxicity tend to have milder GI symptoms, but much more prominent neurological symptoms. Examiners in our case would have carried out the colour spot tests that I alluded to earlier, on the samples of powder provided. Now, there are two highly toxic reagents used extensively in forensic toxicology. Mandolin, a Marquis reagent. With the mandolin reagent, a positive aspirin test would give a greeny, olivey kind of colour. A positive with the positive test, rather, with the Marquis reagent would give a pink colour, followed by this really deep, intense red. Let's see how the rest of this real-life case unfolded. So, investigators needed to test the urine of the child to confirm where the deliberate poisoning had taken place. 
aspirin is rapidly metabolized in the body to form salicylate ions. Just to be clear, aspirin is an example of an acetylated salicylate. This chemical that's classified among the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs as they're called. And they're designed to reduce the signs and symptoms of inflammation among other properties. The therapeutic range for pain relief is about 10 to 20 milligrams of salicylate per deciliter of blood. A deciliter is about 100 milliliters. Symptoms of salicylate toxicity appear at levels below 30 milligrams per deciliter and are evident at levels higher than 40 milligrams per deciliter. Extreme toxicity, so we're talking around between about 60 and 100 milligrams per deciliter, requires emergency measures such as dialysis. Adults contain about 5 to 6 litres, that's about 50 to 60 deciliters of blood. So acute salicylate toxicity sometimes occurs after consumption of only about 6 lots of 500 milligram aspirin tablets over a period of a very few hours. Small children with lower body mass and blood volume exhibit acute toxicity after swallowing only one or two 500 milligram aspirin tablets. Salicylate ions form a violet complex with iron 3 ions. Now, by making up solutions of known concentrations of salicylate ions, reacting them with iron 3 ions and visually comparing the intensity of the colour produced against a urine specimen of unknown concentration of salicylate, we can very easily determine if the sample shows evidence of poisoning. That's a practical uh, that I do with my own students. It's a really easy one to do to detect whether we have salicylate poisoning or have very high concentrations of it. No antidote exists, I should say that. So management really does focus on just decreasing absorption and enhancing the elimination of salicylate. Luckily, in the case of Sarai Rodriguez Miranda, the urine test came back negative. The child in question had no signs of aspirin poisoning. But what's shocking is that after a careful analysis, the bottles of breast milk found in the fridge were shown to have sufficient quantities of drugs in them to kill a grown adult. There are a practically unlimited number of poisons that may be present in individual cases and under particular circumstances. In recent years, forensic toxicology has benefited from advances in broader areas of science and technology. However, the demand for toxicological examinations and the detection of such poisons has continued to grow. The very first podcast that I recorded for this channel was way back in December 2018, and it was a countdown of the top 10 deadliest poisons. So if this podcast has given you a bit of food for thought, Perhaps have a listen to that one too. You might be surprised what comes out at number one. Thanks for listening, everyone.